I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast may contain coarse language and descriptions of violence which may not be suitable to all audiences. Welcome to the Soldier On podcast. I'm Hugh Remington. In this series, we'll be exploring the stories that highlight, celebrate and connect our veteran community. It's not just military personnel who serve, with thousands of civilians having been embedded in the Australian Defence Force on operations at home and overseas. One such was David Savage AM, who was Australia's first civilian casualty of the Afghanistan war. In 2012, he was almost killed by a child suicide bomber. David, formerly a member of the Australian Federal Police, was serving as an AusAid stabilisation advisor in Afghanistan at the time. He was accompanied by 16 members of the US National Guard working as his security detachment when a child wearing an explosive device as a vest was able to walk up to David and detonate the device. The explosion left David critically injured and fighting for his life. David's story is one of outstanding resilience and hope. Years after the attack, David was made a member of the Order of Australia, AM, for his work in international relations, peacekeeping and human rights investigations and he was an ACT finalist in the 2015 Australian of the Year Awards. He is also a Soldier On ambassador. The reason I joined the Australian Federal Police instead of the New South Wales Police was there was two reasons. One, I could join the Federal Police as an 18-year-old, so you had to be 19 to join the New South Wales Police, so I was a Sydney lad. And also, one of my father's friends was in the AFP and he was deployed to Cyprus. And I thought, how can you be in the police and be deployed overseas to the Mediterranean? So I thought that sounded pretty, pretty interesting. So I put in, got to the AFP and I worked uh, in Canberra doing what they call general policing. And I was a, a detective investigating normal crimes and also worked in the major crime squad doing, doing murders and, and obviously major crimes. During those periods, I was fortunate enough to apply for and be successful in undertaking UN peacekeeping missions. So my first was to Mozambique in the mid-90s after the end of the civil war there. Literally the first day or two that I was there, I thought, this is where 
my future lies. I really, you know, I could see myself doing this, you know, forever. So I worked in Mozambique, came back, went to Bougainville when the truce was signed in the Civil War there, came back. I worked in the police. Then I was selected to go to East Timor for the vote to separate from Indonesia. So I was there during the, the violence prior to um, Interfet being deployed there. Then I was deployed back again with the AFP and seconded to investigate the war crimes in East Timor. And I ended up going for six months resigning from the AFP and um, working for a further four years with the United Nations and I ended up being the Chief of Investigations for the War Crimes Unit. I then was asked to go and work on a number of other international projects and then I was asked to go to Afghanistan which then uh, led me to being deployed with the Australian Government. So I was working with the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission, teaching their investigators how to undertake war crimes and human rights investigations. That was in, in 2009. I returned to, to the UN in New York, working on war crimes from there. My wife had had enough of living overseas and um, following me around, so we moved back to Australia and I started working for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. It just was a very difficult process to transition back into. Even though I tried to psych myself into what it was going to be like to, to be in an office, the, the reality is for you know 30 years I hadn't been, you know, I'd worked in offices, but I'd never been confined to an office. As a policeman, obviously you come into the office, but you head off to do your investigations, come back, and the same as when I was with the UN and other agencies. And it, it, look, it felt like a, a straitjacket. It felt like I was in a jail. Early 2011, someone must have realised how much I hated sitting behind a desk in an office in Canberra. And one of the bosses came and said, oh, you've been to Afghanistan um, before? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to go back? And I said, um, yes, without even asking what the job was or as long as the computer screen was dis going to disappear in front of me and unfortunately without you know <laughs> saying I'll check with my wife <laughs> yeah so I went, ho went home that night and, and I think my wife in some ways was relieved because I was going to stop whinging about um, going to the office and having to leave at 6.30 so I could get a park so um, the role was to be what they call a stabilisation advisor it was a different kind of role. It was a role that hadn't really been done before, which was as a civilian to be embedded with the Australian and the American military, doing um, similar things to what I'd done before, as in community outreach, going out and speaking to communities. But this time, instead of gaining their confidence to talk about war crimes, it was to gain their confidence to come and support the central Afghan government and to reject the insurgency being the obviously the Taliban and, and Islamic State. Where I had been previously was based in, in Kabul and up in the north, which was a, the city of Mazar-e-Sharif. And when I'd been there in 2009, not Kabul, but Mazar-e-Sharif was a very, uh, what they call a, a permissive security environment. It was quite calm. I was able to move around quite safely without security. I was able to go to um, the homes of the Afghan that I worked with and, you know, if I wanted to go somewhere, I could catch a, a taxi. You know, you, you still had to be very much aware. But 
Then two years later, when I went back to Afghanistan, I was in the Erzgan province, which was down in the south, which was one of the most volatile provinces where the war was, was absolutely, you know, full bore, as, as we know. I was going in into a um, what they call a forward operating base. So the main base was in Tarankout, and I was about 30 kilometres away in a forward operating base. So and locked in, couldn't step outside what they call outside the wire without a large security detachment. So so yeah, so it was going from being relatively free and able to do what I wanted to being. Almost, we found ourselves almost imprisoned in, inside the bases, and then we had to organise to go out to to do patrols and to go and visit villages, government offices, and things. It was quite a, a large security arrangement to to organise that. So it was a huge change from the two years previously. The greatest threat was IEDs and. They would secrete them in in roads and and footpaths, you know, or pathways that you'd patrol along to get to certain buildings or to certain places. So every time, as they say, stepped outside the wire, you it really could have been a time that you, someone hit an IED. And the Afghan National Army, the Afghan police, the Afghan civil servants were always being targeted because they were a softer target. Barely a day would go by that someone wasn't being blown up in, in, in the area. It was all very real. Having the only real medical uh, facility in, in our district, people who, who got injured by IEDs, as in Afghan civilians, would present at the front gates, you know, seeking, you know, women and children that had been out, out in the paddocks um, farming or whatever and that had inadvertently st stood on an IED and horrendously injured would be presented and then be treated by our medics and then obviously medivac to facilities. So, so it was a real danger for everybody in the environment um, on a daily basis. I had kids quite young, so my, my kids were adults by the time that I went to Afghanistan. And it's interesting because um, going to other places, you know, that, that other places were dangerous, but in, in the, nothing was the same as Afghanistan. And yeah, my son said to me just before I left to go back, he said, I don't have a good feeling about this, Dad. You're sure you have to go back? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, that's what I do or... Look, I was really enjoying the work and felt that I was starting to gain some traction. And my wife, my, uh, <laughs> I should say my long-suffering wife, she wasn't very happy that I was there, I have to be honest. She th thought that I should have, um, shouldn't have gone there because she felt the dangers were, were too great. My son and I had a number of conversations, you know, I, 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 I never tried to lie about what the threats were and the dangers were and because um, I'd had some threats directed at me by the Taliban and clearly I'd started to gain some traction with the community so they they weren't very happy about that and they had written some what they call night letters which they post at night on government buildings and threatened people that would meet with me and then started to threaten me that if I kept uh, up what I was doing that, that they would uh, dispatch me but um you know, you, you can't fold to those threats because that's obviously what they want you to do. We had some very senior Australian military and uh, government officials coming to meet with uh, the Afghan government officials. 
So what we had to do, or my job, was to arrange the meeting, but not let anyone, including the Afghan officials who they were meeting, know who was coming and, and when. So it's a very, sadly, you, you couldn't trust everybody. So you were trying to arrange a meeting and make sure that people are at the office for when you do arrive, whatever time that will be, but without telling them the level of, of the visit, because, you know, if these people had been taken out, it would have, you know, been a very big win and a big loss for Australia, obviously. I arranged to go to the uh, what they called the White Compound, which was the district um, government headquarters. It was called a White Compound because it literally was painted white and it was a like a little fort. I had 16 US National Guard as my uh, security detachment. Their role literally was to, to form a bubble around me and um, to escort me wherever I needed to go to do my job. In uh, the township of Chora, where I was based, the, the, the roads were very, very narrow, so it was considered to be far more dangerous to go in armoured vehicles because of the lack of manoeuvrability. So probably 95% of the time we would go what they call dismounted, so on, by foot, because you could duck in and out of alleys and things and no one would know which route you were going to take at a given time to try and, you know, ambush you or whatever. So we'd gone to the white compound, we'd had a, a, a meet, meeting and, and I'd managed to uh, convince all the government officials to be at the office the next day and I, I under the guise of um, that someone was going to come to assess the office about how to do some structural improvements and things as opposed to all these key leaders were coming. We were on, on the way back and unfortunately the one of the American soldiers, the guy in charge of the security detachment decided that he would get some Afghan bread from the from the bakery to have as lunch and which wasn't an unusual thing but when it wasn't ready we would just leave but on this occasion he decided to to wait until more bread was ready he, he had only been there a short time and he um, unfortunately th thought that he knew better than everybody else and um, yeah it was a yeah it's yeah one of those things that they got to live with I I think so we were stuck in the centre of the, the town for about 15 minutes, which gave the uh, the insurgents time to set up a, an ambush and they'd set it up near an area where they knew we had to go through to get back into the base. The whole attack and the whole mission was captured on, on helmet cam because a lot of the soldiers wear cameras on their helmets, you know, like a GoPro type of a thing. And there was a number of signs that the soldiers missed because of their inexperience that there was an attack planned. And one of, one of the guys with the helmet cam video comments that he sees an Afghan with staining on his hands, which was consistent with having mixed homemade explosives. And he just comments to another soldier, you know, I didn't, I couldn't hear this because I was away from them. But you go, it just shows, it showed how, how inexperienced and poorly trained these guys were. People starting to move away as we moved towards the base. So it's probably about six or seven hundred metres from where we had got the uh, in the market, and we were heading heading straight back to the base, which of course was another problem that we were heading down the main road instead of ducking in and out of the back lanes and things. So they knew where we were headed. We had a project that I was running, a flood mitigation project to dig very deep gutters or, or drainage ditches either side of the road because when the snow melted on the mountains, they, it used to wash away half the village. So we had a lot of workers working on the project and the lead guy on the patrol said, oh, it's really strange, everyone's leaving. 
which is one of the the first signs you know the afghan locals know when something's going to happen and they head off but unfortunately i didn't hear this was this was over the radio to to the other soldiers and i i, I didn't have a radio so I, I wasn't privy to any of these concerns and um he said oh it's really strange they all left but they also left in such a hurry they left all their tools and things behind now an afghan never leaves a tool behind because that's the most valuable thing you know that in, in his life to the ability to earn money but these guys just didn't didn't recognize it and then we got to a point and a motorcycle rode up along the road so we had to stop the patrol while they searched the motorbike and that that was to keep us in the position to be to be blown up essentially Luckily, I'd, I'd taken my camera out to film the project the progress so I could actually show to the um, head of Ausaid and that that were coming the next day. And uh, that is probably what saved my life because um, I was up filming the drainage ditches and things and I was standing on the edge of one of the ditches and unbeknownst to me, the child suicide bomber was approaching from my back. On the video, they they actually you, one of the soldiers watches him approach me for about oh, forty seconds. He's dressed all in white, and you can see him holding the the two detonators in his hands, which is, <laughs> you know, they just missed everything. But he came up from behind me, and I'd um, had just gone to put my camera into my um, a pouch on the the top of my ballistic vest when the blast went off, and that saved my life because the. Uh, suicide vest was full of seven millimeter ball bearings so I had four go into my helmet which luckily didn't penetrate and then I had my hand up trying to put this camera into this pouch and I had 20 something ball bearings hit my arm and shoulder which would have gone into my face or my head if, if I hadn't have been putting the pouch down all in all I had 64 of these seven millimeter ball bearings went into me and about another 30 or so into my helmet and my ballistic vest. But the only part of me that, that wasn't hit by in the blast was my right arm, which ironically um, I uh, was unable to use for a couple of years because the damage to the, my brain on my left side of my brain stopped me able to use the, the only undamaged <laughs> limb I had. I was uh, what they call a cat A, which is the most seriously wounded category. And... Yes, I had uh, ball bearings through my legs that, you know, destroyed all the, the nerves in my left leg. They broke my right leg. I had a, a ball bearing in my spine, which stopped resting against my uh, spinal cord. It uh, collapsed lungs. One stopped in the sac around my heart, only a couple of millimetres from my heart. Obviously, unfortunately, it was a child suicide bomber. He was a 12-year-old child. He was killed instantly. Three other soldiers were quite severely wounded. Unfortunately, one of them was the medic, which created a lot of problems. And um, the only reason that any of us are probably still alive is that the bravery of the Australian soldiers at the base who were just settling down for lunch, who raced out immediately, and it was what they call a a complex attack so after they blew me up they started machine gunning us as well but because the uh, Australian soldiers came out and there was also a patrol of US Navy SEALs that had stopped for a break at the the base and they raced out in their shorts and t-shirts yeah look if they hadn't have come out immediately 
the risk of us obviously being shot and things would have been high, but also the fact that they were able to administer first aid very quickly and put um, tourniquets on our limbs to stop us bleeding out. Yeah, that was the reason that we, we survived. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, the first memory was laying on the on the ground and opening my eyes and i i couldn't um i'd, I'd actually been the blast i'd also been thrown 10 meters in the air and i'd landed flat on my back and i had what they call spinal shock so i was paralyzed from the neck down laying there and and you know you get trained to a try and tend to your own wounds and then help others but knowing literally that my eyes was the only thing that literally could move at that stage and, and you know just laying there flat on my back knowing that I couldn't do anything was a very very frightening thing until um you know soldiers faces in it right in my face and and you know my ear eardrums and inner ears had been blown out by the blast because the the blast only went was three meters away from me so you know people are you know trying to read their lips because they're yelling into my face about you know where's the pain what's this you know and then being uh picked up and and taken into the into the base where you know all these young soldiers i was i was the oldest on the base and they you know people used to call me pops and things because these guys are 19 20 years old and i'm you know i was 48 i think at the time but have these 19 and 20 year olds you know administering drips into my arms and doing all this to try and you know save me was uh was a very humbling period of time the system in place is incredible from the the moment the blast occurred to me being prepped for surgery was 52 minutes you may have heard of the golden hour and um which is you know if they can get you in and within an hour there's something like high 90 percent chance of saving your life and and in my case that was true you know I, I i died twice i had to be resuscitated twice luckily when that happened i was i was in in the major medical facility to be able to be brought back but if i was in the field it probably i probably wouldn't have survived the taliban always brag about these kinds of things so they made a statement saying that um they said the name of the bomber and that I was blown up in retaliation because an American soldier had gone crazy and had, had shot up a, a number of um, Afghan civilians. It's been a very difficult, probably one of the hardest things to live with is to know that someone was murdered to try and kill you. You know, a 12-year-old child can't form a, an opinion or a view to, to try and kill somebody. It's something that they're, you know, tricked or, or um, brainwashed into. There's a number of um, means that they use to, to recruit the kids. 
the majority of them are recruited from what they call uh, madrasas or religious schools in Pakistan, who are, you know, Afghan families let their kids go there thinking that they're going to get a, a religious education, but they get, um, you know, the vulnerable ones are, are chosen and brainwashed. And, you know, they tell them that they're not going to die. But, you know, you've got to remember most of these kids in, in the area we were, only about 5% literacy rate. So people are very ignorant about about things and um, you know they can tell them what's in the Quran even though it's not in the Quran because no one can read to say no it's not in there you know that's they're very easy easy to be manipulated so I went from the small base we we're at to Tarrant Cout where I had emergency surgery there then I was flown to Kandahar which is the next um, level of like a ICU sort of uh, equivalent and then I was there for I think two days until I was stable enough to and flown to Germany which is, I think, only about four or five hours flight away, and um, I spent a fortnight there. It's there where they told me that I'd been blown up by a suicide bomb, and I, and because I, the first few days I couldn't move because I was paralysed, I couldn't see, and I, and I just assumed that I'd lost my legs because everyone that gets blown up or stands on an IED loses their legs, and I couldn't feel anything, so I just assumed that I'd lost my legs. I, th I think when my wife and kids arrived and they assured me that, you know, that my legs were there even though they had, had lots of holes in them. But I still didn't grasp the severity of my injuries. It was, you know, it was a very, very confusing time. And when I arrived in, in St. Vincent's in Sydney, the head of trauma came and, and assessed me and he said, my injuries were equivalent to being shot with a shotgun eight times. And he said, and no one can survive that. And he said, I've got no idea how you have. And I'd only been stabilised so and, and my life saved. It was then that all the operations to, to essentially try and fix things commenced. That was the start of, I think, 23 or something major surgeries over the next five years to get me um, as good as I could be. No one would give me a prognosis, which was the interesting thing. The first operation I had was actually on my left leg and and look I, I i doctors would come in and try and explain what certain things were but i i, I don't you know i was under a lot of drugs and things obviously because of the pain and stuff but the first major surgery i had was to do nerve grafts and and things in my left leg the surgeon you know said there'd be a probably a three or four hour surgery apparently when it when he opened up and and saw it the other doctors said you know that's beyond salvageable but he he spent i think it was 12 or 13 hours and managed to do a lot of grafts taking nerves from other things and piggybacking them on and as i said every every part of me was was damaged you know i've I've got a thing called quadranopia which i've lost a quarter of the vision in my you know the bottom right vision in both eyes both my ears were blown out holes in my you know my wrist was broken my um holes through my hand um my right leg was broken my torso was peppered um, with things. Yeah, it's hard to um, <laughs> it's hard to explain how what a big job it was going to be, and you know, and I had the best of surgeons and and the best of support, and they just uh, I think pretty well said that they'll do the best they they can, and they were very committed, and they did a, an amazing job. When I when I was first injured, because I was so drugged and sedated because of the pain, I I hadn't had to do or say anything and one stage I think after a week or two at St Vincent's 
my my wife had been staying sort of 16 hours a day with me had ducked out to probably go to the bathroom or something and they came in and they asked me my date of birth before they gave me some medication and I was like oh I don't know my date of birth and they said well give us your full name and I'm like I don't know who I am (laughs) and they were like oh and then so then they went oh and so then they did testing and then went oh gosh and I had both arms in 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 plaster to my shoulder I you know both my legs were in plaster so I hadn't had to do anything for myself so uh you know when that was out you know I I didn't know how to undo a button how to do a zip or do do anything couldn't write I had to I went under years of occupational therapist to to learn how to do the most basic things of dressing myself doing up buttons doing up zippers learning to write you know I started to learn to write they'd put flour on a table and I'd just run my finger in it trying to get a sensory sort of connection and I I, I was in that era where I I was actually left-handed when I was born and um, I'd been made to be a right-handed at school but I ended ended up on back as a left-handed now because of the damage to to the left side stopped me being able to use my right arm so now I write left-handed. In some ways I think my age helped me because I can remember in a hospital going I'm not going to be that cliche of the, you know, from a movie where, um, you know, the, the veteran sits there whinging and drinking whiskey uh, into, into oblivion and stuff. I did have that, that awareness that that was not going to be me. And the other thing was I, I wasn't in a, in a new relationship. We'd been married for 30 years or close to it. You know, we'd been through thick and thin, bringing up kids from young and things. And, you know, I had an incredible support base. Soldier On essentially launched about a week after I was wounded. Just by some coincidence, my son was invited to the to the launch, and then uh, John Bale, who who was the founder of Soldier On, came and and visited me in hospital. And and because I, I was a civilian, I, I I wasn't covered by the military things, and um, they reached out and said, uh, you know, we're here for you, and um, but not only for you, but we're here to support your family as well. And and that was, to be honest, that was um, one of the greatest things because I I'd had friends and things, but there was nothing there for my family, and you know, I was still a public servant. Remember, I was just um, seconded to this role, and. Department of Foreign Affairs had no idea how to deal with, you know, a critically wounded staff member from a, you know, war injury. And I didn't come come under the Department of Veterans Affairs. I come under ComCare, which are more used to treating people that have fallen off a chair in an office or whatever. And so they hadn't dealt with what they call a catastrophic, uh, the injured person and didn't know how to deal with that. But we had soldier on who who were there to support not just myself but and even though our kids were a bit older but to support my kids and be there and that was a, an immense help and uh, relief for us all once i was starting to be given sort of day pass from rehab hospital and stuff you know i, was, I can't remember exactly but it's probably 6 or 7 months i was in hospital i'd come out and you know i was incredibly fragile but and my wife was very you know, understandably very protective and things. But if you went to have have a what they call a coffee catch up with soldier on people, and they were all vets and things, and you didn't feel that you had to explain why you were there. And and in some cases, for years, I'd, I'd see people there, and we'd have a coffee, and and I'd never ask them what had happened. They'd never ask me. 
and in some cases it was years before I even found out what they'd been through because it wasn't a, about that. It was just about having people around that understood that you didn't need to explain that people were there just to support you. And um, when, when you're so, I guess, so not just physically uh, catastrophically injured, but, you know, the, the, the trauma because of the, the, the manner I was injured was really not only for me, but it was quite difficult for my family to that sort of grief and and suffering and thing becomes all-encompassing so it's good to to have a break because one of the things that people don't realize is being wounded you know serving a country can have an incredible financial toll you know my wife gave up her job so so we went from having you know two pretty good salaries to 75% of one salary but your outgoings don't change and Soldron gave us the opportunity to 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 have social outings and and things that we you know probably you know would have struggled to have paid for and so it's it's they provide a whole range of support that people don't think that you know are necessarily required but they know what's needed if that makes sense and they they have all these different activities so yeah no it's it's been been a great thing for us our family and and others that i know have gone through it i i'd learned to walk it took it took me probably about 18 months and i'd i'd finally learned how to walk so it was about two years i think it was two years after i was i was wounded the week before Easter, I started feeling some uh, tingling in my right leg, and I I knew that I had a ball bearing against my um, spinal cord. And the, my new neurologist um, said that if I ever get certain symptoms, that I've got to get to Sydney straight away. And but I started getting this tingling in my right leg, which um, I used to refer to as my good leg because it wasn't as badly damaged as my left one. And uh, but I tried to ignore it, and then. I think it was on the Tuesday before Easter, my wife said, oh, you're dragging your right leg. And I said, oh, yeah, I've got a bit of tingling. Anyway, we went to the doctor and and she um, called the neurologist and we raced up to Sydney on the Wednesday. I was put straight into hospital, but by the following Tuesday, my right leg was completely paralysed. To me, I don't know about the others, but that was because I was actually aware of it whilst when I was injured, I was, you know, it wasn't quite cognizant of everything that was going on but that was more devastating to me than the original injury and then you know I, I diagnosed as being an incomplete paraplegic which um, was you know a massive shock and basically there was a slight signal going through but they didn't know whether it would ever return or whatever but they looked at doing surgery but they decided that where the ball bearing was that and for the same reason that they didn't touch it originally that that I would definitely end up a paraplegic plus a whole pile of other side effects would would come into play so it was decided that that it had to stay there so I'd been in a, in a in a wheelchair for for 8 years I think and I'd continued physio because I kept it's one of those things you know that you you, you want to keep hope and then about 18 months ago, um, my physio, because I go to a neurophysio, and they said there's this uh, machine, this brace that's fairly new that we think that you may be able to get some movement back with it. But I had to spend 12 months intensive with with a, a, a trainer and at the gym to try and strengthen my buttocks and my hip flexors and things because I had to have some movement in those to activate this device. And last November, I, I did, a, did a trial, and it was... That was very nerve-wracking because it was one of those things where 
you either can activate it or you can't and it's either going to work for you or, or not and if it wasn't going to work well, then I was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life. It did work, although I did have a bit of a, <laughs> it was funny, it's funny now, but it wasn't at the time, but they said that, um, you know, I had this brace on and between parallel bars and if you activate it, it will beep because it's quite a new, there was about a dozen physios all there watching and stuff. So I'm trying to swing my leg and stuff, but there's no, no sound at all. I could see everyone around me, you know, the sort of the smiles and things disappearing from their faces. You know, and I tried again and still no beep and that. And then the guy running goes, oh, sorry, I forgot to turn the sound on. And <laughs> anyway, so the next thing he, he does fiddles around, I move it and goes beep and everyone just went, yay! You know? Yeah, so then I had to wait a couple of months for it to come from Germany my, to, to be able to practice. And then in the meantime, you know, my, my aim has been to walk my daughter down the aisle and um this thing's managed to work and now i you know this morning i walked two kilometers before i came to this interview but i was hoping to be able to walk 20 meters or something that was my aim and i i never expected it to work so well and my daughter's booked her um wedding and things and and now whether she likes it or not i'm walking her down the aisle <laughs> The public has a very short attention span with news stories and things, and it's the same with things like Afghanistan and Iraq and and those kinds of things. And and people sort of think, oh, people come home, they get patched up and and move on. And but the trauma and the the need for support never goes away, and and that's why it's so critical for organisations like Soldier On to be there and both the government and the community to continue to support it because. Quite often people won't present with issues um, because they're too proud or they don't want to admit to things. And it might be years and years or even decades after that they come forward and say, I need help or I need assistance. Or, and regardless of how, you know, they might think it's minor or how extreme it is. And, and that's why it needs, Soldier On needs to be an enduring organisation to be able to be there to support people, men and women who've um, given great service for our country. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soldier On podcast. Soldier On is a not-for-profit veteran support organisation delivering a range of services to enable serving and ex-serving veterans and their families to thrive. If listening to today's podcast has brought up any personal concerns for yourself, a list of support services can be found in our show notes. The Soldier On podcast is produced by Smartfella Media, with special thanks to the team at Artsound FM in Canberra. I'm Hugh Rimmington. Thanks for listening. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 